So we're in a series called The Ultimate Physician. And last week, um, Mike taught us from Luke chapter 5. If you, if you missed that, you can um, go on the web and uh, listen to that. I often download uh, the sermons from the church um, when I get home from our church in Spain on Sunday evenings. But th- this week, the title that I was given is um, The Very Word of Jesus is Enough to Heal. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus encounters a man who had great faith. But, but it comes from a shocking person and produces some shocking truths. Even Jesus is a bit shocked at first. And this week, as I had the opportunity to study this passage, I, uh, I came to a deeper understanding of what great faith is, how it's developed, and how great faith produces great results. The passage comes right at the conclusion of Jesus' instructions to his disciples on how to be a disciple. Uh, I've heard many times um, Luke chapter 6, the, the chapter before what we read this morning, as the discipleship manner, manual of Jesus. You know, you know, because it's the Beatitudes. You know, blessed are the poor. Blessed are the hungry. R- really, Lord? You know, that, that's not the way the world thinks. We, we live in an upside-down world. And Jesus is flipping it back right. We as the disciples are, are, are to show the world what right-side-up look, living looks like. Now in, in Luke chapter 7 and 8 and 9, Christ begins to not just teach with his words, but by example of what it is to be his disciple. And we come to the first lesson that he gives, and um, that's in developing great faith. The scene, as we read in Luke chapter 7, verses 1 and 2, we're introduced to the centurion and his sick servant. Now, when he had concluded all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum, and at a certain centurion servant who was dear to him was sick and ready to die. Jesus was finishing up his teaching, and now he enters Capernaum, a small fishing village near the Sea of Galilee. This is where Jesus spent much of his time. He performed many of his miracles. And in verse 2, it goes on to tell us about the centurion. The centurion, as you probably know, is a Roman officer who commands about 100 men in the military. Most of them were Gentiles, non-Jews, but there were some half-Jews or Samaritans. And really, the Jewish authorities and leaders didn't like the centurions. They they didn't like the half-Jews. Not only were they symbolic of, German, of Roman rule, but they often abused their power. They took unjust liberties. The, the great Greek philosopher Aristotle writes this in his book Ethics. He says, there could be no friendship, no justice towards anything inanimate, not even towards a horse, an ox, or a slave. And that's the mindset of most of the Roman leaders. But, but, but not this, not this centurion. This is a dear servant who became sick. He cared for the servant. And, and when the text says that the servant was sick, the, the Greek literally means that he had it really bad. The servant had it bad, and Luke, the physician, is writing this. So this is the doctor's prognosis, that he has it really bad. Now, now there's three things that you never want to hear from a doctor. The first is, oops. Okay, the the second is, hmm, I've never seen that before. 
Okay, and, and the third is, oh, this is really bad. And that's what Luke is saying here, that this servant has it really, really bad. He's ready to die. He's at the point of death. We don't know what he had, but in Matthew chapter 8, verse 6, um, it indicates that this sickness was paralysis with great torment. Generally, paralysis means that you have no feeling. But the servant was paralyzed and in great pain. He had the worst of both worlds. And the centurion who loved the servant hated to see him in distress and in agony. And in verse 3, he hears that Jesus is in town and he sends some people to ask Jesus to heal his servant. Verse 3, so when he heard about Jesus, he sent elders of the Jews pleading with him to come and heal his servant. In Jewish culture or almost any culture in the world, when a man of authority sends someone to be his representative, it's as, that, it's as if that person is standing there before him. And the centurion sends the Jews as his representatives, which is really curious because, as I mentioned, they really didn't get along. But they would rarely submit to a Roman army officer, but that's exactly what they do. He does what they ask and they do it quickly. And that tells us a little bit something about the relationship that this particular military officer had with the Jewish people he ruled. Verse 4 says that they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly. The situation was so desire, so important, they come pleading and begging earnestly for Jesus to heal that servant. However, the, the elders explain why they are being sent as intermediaries. See, a distinguished Jewish rabbi has come to town, and so as not to offend him, the centurion sent the Jewish elders to ask for this. The Jewish elders make a case for Jesus on why he should heal the centurion. Verse 4 and 5 says, And when they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying that the one for whom he should do this was deserving. For he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. Do you see their approach here? Yes, they come and beg him earnestly, but they give reason for why this man deserves Jesus' help. The reason was that he loves the Jewish people. He built a synagogue for him. But can't you hear the elders? Jesus, I know he's a Gentile. I know he's a Roman centurion. But just this once, can we overlook all that? After all, look, all the, look at the way he's treated us. He loves the Jews. He built us a synagogue to study God's word. Even if he's a Gentile, he deserves your help. He's really a good man. You know, I wonder sometimes when we pray, if, if that's how we pray. Oh God, I know I'm not perfect. I've sinned a few times. I've made a few mistakes, and, and I'm only human. And I have this little tiny request for you, which I think I deserve. I don't ask for much, God, and I've tried to be good. I go to church, I tithe, I serve at the food bank, I read my Bible every day. Can't you do this one thing for me? But, but when we approach God like that, we're really treating him like Santa Claus. God does not have a heavenly, naughty, and nice list. The prayer of a righteous man accomplish much, 
not because the man is righteous and, and that God listens to his prayer more, but because he knows how to pray according to God's will. We don't deserve anything from God. We cannot bribe God into answering our prayers because of how good we are or what we have done. Don't ever go to God and ask him for things saying, God, I deserve to be given this request. You and I, we don't deserve anything. Everything God gives to you, he gives out of his generosity, his goodness, and as Mike talked about last week, out of his grace. The Jewish elders don't understand this, and they didn't believe this. They thought that the answers to prayers were earned. And in Luke chapter 7, verses 6 to 8, we see that the Gentile centurion, he understood things a little differently. The centurion had certainty of something that the Jewish elders did not. In these verses, we see three traits that set the centurion apart from the Jewish elders. The first is humility, the second is confidence, and the third is comprehension. First, I'd like to talk about his humility. Then Jesus went with them, and when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you sit under under my roof. When he says this, the, the, this phrase, do not trouble yourself, in the Greek it really means uh, don't skin yourself up to do this. Historians think this is a bit of slang, meaning, you know, don't put any of your skin in here. He approaches Jesus with humility. He recognizes that most Jews um, would not associate with Gentiles. Many Jews considered themselves, if they entered the house of a Gentile, that they would be defiled. He did not know that Jesus wasn't concerned about these things, but, but he knew that he needed to respect Jesus. He did not know that Jesus wasn't concerned, but it reveals that the centurion was more concerned about others than he was himself. He thought of others first. He cared for this servant, and now he cares for the cultural and personal inhibitions of a Jewish rabbi. The scriptures say you too should think of others before yourself. Think of their needs and their concerns. Then put those above your own. Secondly, we approach God. We need to recognize that we're not worthy to approach him or he to approach us. He does it not, not out of power in this case, he does it out of love and grace for us. I say this because it, it does balance out what, what we see next in the centurion in verse 7. In verse 7 he says, Therefore, I do not think myself worthy to come to you, but say the word and my servant will be healed. The centurion says that he's not worthy to have Christ come to him or for himself to go to Jesus. So how will this servant be healed? The centurion reveals great confidence in Christ when he says, say the word and my servant will be healed. Such boldness in prayer, you know, I don't think I've ever had that boldness. 
because this is assertive. It's almost audacious. The, the centurion is making a command of Jesus. If you look at the grammatical structure in Greek, it says that he commands Jesus to heal his servant with his word. Now, now how can he do that? Well, here's the key, I think. The, the, the big idea behind these 10 verses, because he knows scripture, He's alluding here to Psalm 107, verse 20, which says, he sent his word and he healed them. The centurion says to Jesus, just send your word and my servant will be healed. The only way our prayers can be this audacious, this assertive, this confident, and this command, commanding is when we have a promise of God to pray. The promise must be rightly understood in context. We, we can't rip verses out of context and pray confidently. But when we know scriptural promises, we can pray those promises so boldly, so confidently, that they rock the gates of heaven. Here's an example. God, I'm not worthy that you should come to me or that I should come to you but I was reading your word today and it says this, God, do what your word says. Do it because your word says it. I had a professor in seminary 17 years ago. His name is uh, Dr. Rick Love. And um, we would pray as a class and um, oftentimes scripturally and it was intimidating for me because he would just yell out in the middle of our prayers, do it, Lord, do it. You know, and I thought, well, that's kind of like Nike, you know, just do it. And even today, I'm a little intimidated to pray that boldly. And has Jesus' instructions to his disciples on how to pray ever bothered you? He says that whatever you pray in his name, he will do. That's John 14, 13. But this does not mean that you tack on Jesus' name at the end of your prayers, and you'll receive what you pray for. No, what it means is when you pray for things that Jesus prays for. When you pray for things according to the teaching, life, example, and the will of Jesus. When you pray in accordance to scripture, when you pray these things, they'll be done for you. This is what the centurion does. Yes, he's confident. Yes, he's a little brash maybe. He is very bold, but he's confident in Christ and not himself. He's confident in the word of Jesus. He's confident that Jesus can heal. This confidence springs from something that he comprehends about Jesus and the nature of commands. And this is what we see in verse 8. He says, For I am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under me, and I say to one, Go, and he goes, and to the other, Come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. You see, the centurion has a comprehension of power. He understood power and how it works. He understood something about Jesus that the Jewish leaders did not. Now, I'm going to tell you what he understood in just a minute. But first, I want to show you uh, Jesus' perspective. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled. And this is verse 9. He marveled and turned around and said to the crowd that's following him, I say to you, I have not found such great faith even in all of Israel. 
So when Jesus hears the word spoken by the centurion's friends, he marvels and turns around. Uh, Jesus is shocked by what he hears. He was stopped in his tracks. He's walking toward the centurion's house. A friend says, you don't have to go. The centurion says, just say the word and his servant will be healed. It says Jesus marveled at this man's faith. He says to the crowd, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. It's like he's saying, wow, now that's great faith. Has your faith ever shocked Jesus? Uh, I think I can say yes, but it's probably my lack of it, (laughs) not my great faith. You see, the, the, the one other time in Scripture uh, that Jesus ever describes being amazed like this is when, when he visits his hometown of Nazareth and he marvels at the complete lack of faith. It, it, it's hard to shock Jesus. But when you do it, we, we need to ask ourselves, will, will it be either be my great faith or my lack of it? Great faith does not have lots and lots of faith, whereas little faith has hardly any. It's not about percentages. It's not about degrees of faith. You and I don't have um, small faith containers in our soul that overflow when we have great faith. Uh, And they're they're empty when we have little faith. Faith doesn't work like that. Hebrews 11.1 clearly explains it. It says, Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Faith is confidence and persuasion in something that God has said. When you're persuaded about something that is true, either because God has said it or is supported by evidence, then you have faith in that truth. Great faith believes and is convinced and is persuaded about some of the harder and more difficult truths of Scripture, whereas little faith does not believe or is not convinced or is not persuaded by these truths. See, you either believe in something or you don't. Faith is like a switch. It's either on or off. There's no dimmer switch with faith. You can't 80% believe that there is a God. You either believe it or you don't. If you're 99% sure, then you don't believe yet. You're not persuaded. You're not convinced that there is a God. Great faith believes greater and more difficult truths than little faith. Great faith is fully convinced of the difficult promises and the hard-to-understand truths of Scripture. Little faith does not believe them. Little faith is maybe a simple faith, a first-grade understanding of the level of truth. Something like, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That's a simple truth. But little faith does not believe in the more difficult truths of Scripture. Like God will supply all your needs according to his rich glories. Do you believe that? Then why do we worry about tomorrow? We worry all the time about tomorrow. So it means that we don't believe that he's going to provide for our needs. Great faith believes the hard-to-believe truths of the Bible. Great faith has nothing to do with the size of your faith, but rather the difficult truths you do believe. And that brings me back to the centurion. What did he believe? 
Jesus praises the centurion for his great faith. He says that he hasn't found such great faith in all of Israel. This centurion believes something which very few people believed. He believed something very difficult to believe. He believed one of the hardest truths which no one else believed around him. First, he believed in his own lack of merit. He was humble. Uh, Yes, in human standards, he was a good man. Yes, he loved the Jews. He built a synagogue for them. But that didn't mean he deserved anything from God. He knew he was unworthy to meet Jesus. And he knew he was unworthy to have Jesus come to him. Most people don't believe this. Most people think they deserve favors from God. Most people think they are pretty good people and God owes them something. It is much harder to believe that all we have and all we're given is simply by the grace of God. But that's the first thing the centurion believed. Secondly, he believed in the power of Jesus. He is confident in Christ, not himself. He believes in the authority of Jesus. He likened Jesus to a military commander. He knew that what Jesus commanded would be done. He knew that the words of Jesus were sufficient to accomplish all healing. Again, most people don't believe this either. We have promises in scripture that Christ will make us more and more like himself. He tells us that he will never leave us or forsake us. He tells us that he will provide for all our needs. He tells us that he has given us everything we need for life and godliness. He tells us that getting the word of God in our lives will wash us and transform us into his likeness. His word is sufficient. Most people don't believe this. And I'll be the first to admit that these are some hard truths to believe. But the centurion showed great faith because he believed in the power and the authority of Jesus to do exactly what he said he would do. The centurion believed that Christ's word was sufficient. And this is related to the third thing the centurion believed. He believed in the ability of Jesus to heal from a distance. He believed Jesus did not have to be physically present with the dying servant to heal him. Jesus did not have to wave his arms or say anything special. Healing from God comes without any of these sort of things, which many people did back then, and some people do today. The centurion believed these things when almost no one else did. He had such great faith. Great faith is not some higher level of conviction. It is believing something that is harder to believe something which is contrary to what the world believes. He believed something of a difficult truth. And Jesus healed his servant. And then lastly, in verse 10, and those who were sent returned to the house, found the servant well who had been sick. The the word that Luke uses here for well means to be in full health, to be sound in mind and body. He uses the same word in Luke chapter 5, verse 31, um, when he talks that there's no need for a physician because there's nothing wrong with them at all. The symptoms of paralysis and pain not only left, but the disease was gone as well. 
It's all gone. The servant was perfectly sound in mind and body. Do you see what God can accomplish for those with great faith? Great faith in his promises. This is the truth that Jesus wanted to pass on to his disciples in his training of them. If you are his disciples, this is what he wants you to learn. Great faith in great promises lead to great results. If you want results, first you have to know the promises. You have to know what he said and has said in his word. Without the knowledge and understanding of those things, we'll never have great faith. Romans 10:17 says that faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God. Without hearing and understanding the word of God, you and I will never have great faith. And without faith, it's impossible to please God, Scripture tells us. John Piper, in his book, The Battle for Your Mind, states that you can't believe in what you haven't heard. So make sure you have regular feedings of God's word. Your faith grows the more you understand and believe what God says. So in closing, I challenge you this week to make your prayer the prayer of the man in Mark chapter 9, verse 24. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. We all have areas of unbelief. Though we believe and are convicted of some things and convinced of those things, we doubt and do not believe other scriptural truths. Praise God for the things you do believe, but pray that God would help you believe the things that you do not. Then when we come to Jesus in prayer, he will marvel at our faith as well. The very words of Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Is that what we believe or do we believe something else?